If you are in the 81% of aspiring authors out there, stop aspiring and start writing with Readsy. Readsy allows indie authors to find and work with the best publishing professionals, from developmental editors to book cover designers to publicists. Just sign up for an author profile, browse the extensive marketplace of professionals, find the best fit for your project, and set a collaboration in motion. And with built-in contracts, protection, and mediation from Readsy, finding qualified freelancers, editors, designers, and marketers as a self-published author just got a lot easier. Go to readsy.com today to sign up and set your first collaboration in motion. That's R-E-E-D-S-Y dot com. Oh no, that's a great term. That was it was laziness. I still don't really understand how I do it. To be told exactly what to write, I kind of gave up. That sort of story is inspirational to a lot of wannabe writers out there who feel they have a book in them but are living a totally different life at the moment. It spoke to me to be away from a cookie cutter sort of, that's a terrible word. I started working on writing as escapist. Taking a book the whole nine yards, from an idea in your head to words on a page, from a scribble on a napkin to a listing on Amazon, that's easier said than done. But it's also easier than you'd think. I'm your host, Casimir M. Stone, and this is Readsy's Bestseller, the podcast demystifying the process of self-publishing a book for aspiring novelists everywhere, one episode at a time. This is Season 3, Chapter 1, Like Magic. Idioms and words can often be misleading. They evolve to help us say what we mean to other people more quickly and efficiently, but often they serve the opposite purpose. They become so overused that they lose the shades of complexity they once encapsulated. A particularly uninteresting English teacher might, for instance, say that idioms work like a charm. In other words, they work well. But any student of literature knows that charms don't always work that well at all. Besides, you're saying it wrong. It's Leviosa, not Leviosa. Worked like a charm is a perfectly fine idiom if you find yourself saying that went well too much. But, well, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that in real life, very few of us find ourselves saying that went well too much. In our world, just as in any good book, there are tension and stakes to everything. Whether that means saving the world or simply coming up with a way to say what you mean to other people without relying on cliché idioms. No one knows that better than Tara Holliday. This season, remember, we're chatting with Tara, a young adult writer who was just a young adult herself when she started writing her hit novel, Hiding Halo, during college, as a means of escaping from boring teachers, boring assignments, and her anything but boring in-laws. If you don't remember, go back and check out our season three prologue. We know that prologues, by definition, are the most skippable part of a book. We can see the listener statistics. But I suggest listening anyways if you want to know exactly how Tara mastered the first commandment of writing fiction for teens, writing like a teen. But for Tara, writing for teenagers wasn't all that tricky anyways. Learning how to write for anyone was the real trick. Well, the first draft, it was just for me, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I would see lazy writing, and I would see cliches, and I would see um, bland characters. And I didn't really care to to go back and edit it into what I actually meant. 
because who was going to read it? Like, I knew that they were interesting characters, even though it didn't show it on the page because they were in my head and they were alive. And so it was basically just a really fancy blueprint kind of of a story right. because I didn't I didn't dive deep because I didn't have to. Tara at first wrote as an escape, not to create a product and certainly not as a profession. That can be very enjoyable, therapeutic even, but it certainly has its fair share of drawbacks too. If I, you know, if I dumb it down to its most um, simple, it's about a girl who's kind of basically a mermaid who's destined to marry a prince that she doesn't want to marry, and she falls in love with the super hot bodyguard. That sounds so stupid. <laughs> Nobody would want to read that book, you know? Like, right. Like, it's just not even a thing. For Tara, the very first draft of Hiding Halo was little more than a diary. And I'm not talking about the diary of Samuel Pepys here, either. It was terrible. It was a very <laughs> terrible draft. I mean, I am embarrassed to let anybody read that first draft. In fact, Hiding Halo came very close to remaining a draft forever, a file on Tara's computer for her to escape into anytime she got bored of schoolwork or familial obligations, but not a book, and certainly not the start of a successful career as a writer. But it had potential, and so I, I shut it down and I finished up my economic paper, turned it in, and then I spent the next, like, two weeks um, editing massive edits on this paper that I had done. And so when I finally got it, I mean, it wasn't two weeks. It took like, you know, months after that. But finally, this paper was done and I was really proud of myself and it was kind of a secret. My husband knew that I had worked on a novel and my best friend knew about it and that was about it. And my husband was the one that said, you've come this far, you've written this huge novel, and you can't just stop there, you know? Like, keep yeah. going. <laughs> and I was like, nobody wants to read about these weird pseudo-mermaids. But eventually, Tara came to embrace the challenges of writing for other people and took them head-on instead. To be able to take that simplistic, cheesy concept and, turn, and it, was all, it was almost like, you know what, challenge accepted. I can make this relatable, and I can make this sound genuine, and I can make it fun to read. But what are the challenges of turning your first draft into a story for others, instead of just a story for yourself? When I went back and beefed it up into a story for other people, once I realized, no, maybe my husband's right, maybe I should um, continue this. Um, I had to look at it through somebody else's eyes, that they don't see that character development that's in my head yet, you know, and they don't see um, how this thing that, that out loud sounds really corny and cheesy and stupid, but how it can actually feel genuine and relatable. That's right. Making a novel relatable isn't just a challenge for authors looking to appeal to teenagers and young adults. Building a believable world and inhabiting it with believable people, known in the publishing sphere as world building, is key for any author. Tara's world just happens to include cults, a fervent military, and of course, mermaids. 
So, I asked Tara what it takes to build a world that is both grounded in reality and yet, by definition, fantastical. What are kind of the tricks of building a world that doesn't, that looks a lot like ours, but isn't quite like ours? How do you make something so fantastical also grounded in reality? Well, my characters, you know, have powers and they can survive in the water. Um, and so it's all very mermaidy without being, you know, there's no fishtails, no seashell bras, which. <laughs> Think about it. Seashell bra, like, really? <laughs> that could not be comfortable. That sounds horrible. That's not a thing. Take it away. <laughs> but um, I try to keep all the fantasy type stuff a little bit based in science. And so it's not just out of left field, but it comes from somewhere. Like there's a, there's a city um, that's kind of like the poor city. And it's Atlantis, actually. Atlantis is basically a crap hole in my series. <laughs> and it's that. just a bunch of beggars and thieves and, and, and struggling people. And they kind of light their city with these huge oxygen tanks and thermite rods. And so it's kind of like welding underwater in order to provide light. And, and then contrasting that... The wealthy city, the capital city of this world, um, is a city in a cave in an island. And so half the city is above water and half the city is below water. And there's kind of a contrast of the elite that lives dry and the, the lower class that lives underwater. And their city is lit up. They mine bioluminescent enzymes and they've created this ceiling glow um, that fades in and out with the day and the night that's from bioluminescence. And so you can make it f cool and fantasy, but still um, understandable instead of just, well, where did that come from? You know? So. Yeah, that's really cool. So you basically, you take these things that don't exist in our real world, like Atlantis or an underwater capital for mermaids, but then you imagine, okay, if they did exist, how would they exist? Exactly. Yeah. You got to you gotta figure out the details so it's not <laughs> just way out of left field. But building a realistic world with fantastical elements is one thing. There's another crucial element to young adult writing, and young adult fantasy in particular, that can make or break a believable novel. We call it the rules of magic. Today, let's talk about creating a magic system. That's Shaylin, Reedsy's YouTuber-in-chief. She makes videos like the one you're hearing right now that break down the various devices, tips, and tricks that go into writing a successful novel, like, say, how to create a magic system. We can group magic into hard magic and soft magic, although it really is more of a sliding scale. Hard magic functions in a more mathematical way. It has set rules and limitations and an understandable framework. A great example is in Sanderson's own series, the Mistborn series, where people ingest metal to do magic and burning through these different types of metals allows them to do different kinds of things. We have a very clear understanding of what different types of metals can do exactly, what kind of limitations there are, the effect this has on the magic user, and we basically know exactly what the characters are or are not capable of. A soft magic system, on the other hand, functions in a more mythical way. There aren't clear rules or limits. We might not even know exactly what magic does or how it works. It's based more around that feeling of wonder, that kind of fantasy 
fantastical feel. So instead of feeling like a science, it really does feel like magic. To learn more about the difference between hard and soft magic, search for Readsy on YouTube and follow the channel. But for right now, we're going to focus on a specific pitfall of writing soft magic, one that cursed Tara's story and came very close to dooming her novel entirely. However, with soft magic, we can't really use magic to solve problems because that would lead to deus ex machina. When you read an excellent young adult series like Harry Potter or Percy Jackson and the Olympians in which a magical world is not just an element of the narrative but the entire selling point, it's easy to write off magic as a sure thing, a device that will pull readers in, create a compelling plot, and get your characters out of sticky situations all in one fell swoop. A device, in other words, that works like a charm. Using magic as a catch-all, especially as an easy way of resolving conflict, isn't just impractical. Much like an overused idiom, it can rob your novel of meaning and stakes entirely. So I had this beta reader who was a big, burly ex-marine re read my second book because there are fight scenes and military stuff. And I was like, I want this to sound right and realistic. Sure. So tell me when this is wrong and cheesy. And so he read it, and there was a part in there when he said exactly what you said. You know, like, this is just magic come to save the day at the last minute, and it's lazy. So come up with something better. Such a device in which an ostensibly unsolvable conflict is resolved with an ostensibly unlikely occurrence very often magic, is referred to as a deus ex machina, and except when used as an intentional gimmick, such as when William Golding saves his colony of children with the help of a random passerby right after things get unforgivably bad in Lord of the Flies, or used for absurdist comedic effects such as the end of Shakespeare's excellent As You Like It, overuse of deus ex machina can derail an entire magic system before it's even been established. As far as figuring out the magic system. I had to learn that the hard way. And so I wrote book one and I kept having to change things like, well, why does she have to do this? Why can't she just run away? And so I had to reinforce the magic to make the situation believable. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so originally it was, well, no, you have to marry the prince because of tradition. Well, that's stupid. Somebody can say, you know, screw tradition, I'm walking away. And so I had to manipulate the magic to where the magic is dependent upon that. And so I had to develop the rules of the world as I wrote and as situations arise, and then go back and add that in. So Tara tweaked her approach. Instead of using magic as a means of explaining why her protagonist could do something, Tara used it to explain why she could not. In other words, Tara viewed magic in her world not as a deus ex machina, a way to resolve conflict, but instead as a source. So it's almost like magic was used more to explain why your protagonist couldn't do something as opposed to explain why she could. Mostly, yeah. A situation would arise and I didn't want magic to save the day. In most situations in the series, when there's big problems or issues or whatever, it's usually the magic that makes it hard. You know, when the bad guy can sense you and can feel when you're nearby, that's a problem because um, my characters can feel auras. And so I had to kind of keep tweaking and developing the magic to suit 
all the problems and to explain the tension, to explain the stakes. Um, and so it kind of developed as I wrote. Tension and stakes. These are things we can all admit exist in our own world, whether that means navigating intimidating in-laws or infuriating teachers, rushing to meet a deadline for a thesis or for a self-publishing podcast. And any good story needs them too. Whether you're wanting to write YA fantasy or the next great American novel, the most important thing to focus on is the tension itself. Just like in life, you want readers to be both bewitched in the moment and eager to see what comes next. You want them to contract the one more chapter before I go to bed syndrome. To effectively do this, you need to do a few things. First, create realistic characters with different goals and conflicts that are important to them. Then, you need to allow the tension to wax and wane, while ensuring the stakes continue to rise even during moments of peace in the narrative. Finally, it must be resolved in a realistic way that allows the characters to develop with meaning, not just with the wave of wand. Of course, even without a deus ex machina, resolving conflict in a novel can be a lot easier than in real life, which brings me back to the tension in Tara's story. Eventually, I published it, and I announced it on Facebook like the day I published it, and nobody knew that I was even like writing. Is that some like a consideration? Like maybe I do just want to leave this to my own. Maybe I, I don't want anyone else to take any control away from this. I just want this to be something for me. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I think that's why I didn't really tell anybody about it mm -hmm. because it was almost like if I could just do this one post and nothing comes from it and nobody buys the book, then I can just bury that post. For Tara, writing was an escape, which makes it all the crazier that when writing itself became trickier than her day-to-day -day troubles, when the stakes in her new world got raised, she stood her ground. This time, she didn't escape. She took the troubles head-on. So, I just had to ask her how she reconciled escapist writing with the need to create a realistic world within the pages. My characters are still people with people flaws and with people thoughts. Yeah, it's escaping to a fantasy, but it's a fantasy that I can picture myself immersed in and that I hope readers can as well, that they can relate and that they're a part of it instead of observing it from the outside because it's just it's so out there you know absolutely yeah that makes a lot of you can't really escape if it's not realistic yeah like that's not it's not a fantasy if you can't be a part of it and so yeah it's escapist but it's it's, it's escaping into something i want to be in that answer defined Tara's writing process moving forward, and it's excellent advice to take for anyone embarking on writing a diary, an essay, a podcast, or a young adult novel, especially if you plan to turn them into a series. Book two wasn't, it wasn't leisurely anymore. Mm -hmm. um, it was, I published a book, I, I figured out how to do it, and I'd done it, and so I had that um, experience under my belt, and I wanted to do it again. And I had um, readers that had emailed me, or people, <laughs> I was stopped in the grocery store a few times. I actually, I was at the park one time, and I overheard two women 
talking about a book and then I heard the name Halo and I kind of perked up and I realized they were talking about my book. I had never met these ladies in my life. And so I came over and I sat by them and I was like, hey, I'm from the neighborhood, you know, and they just kind of kept talking about the book and I just like pretended that I didn't know. (laughs) What is the, the feeling of that, of walking down the park and this is something that for the longest time was just, you know, a, a manuscript on your desktop and all of a sudden people are out there talking about it. What's that like? It's super weird. It's really, <laughs> really weird. I mean, it kind of gives you this rush, like this this make-believe world that you, you know, spend hours and hours and months and years in, in your own head, and now other people are kind of in that world with you. It It's kind of trippy, you know? Like, yeah. it's, it kind of, it's both thrilling and... Um, I don't want to say invasive, but it's it's like, oh, I, I'm sharing this space now. But tension and stakes stick around, even after the trials. And in life, there's always a chapter or book two. Next up, in our second episode, we'll dive into the pitfalls that come after writing your book for other people, namely sharing it with them. You get these comments that make you feel like, sky high a million dollars and then the next paragraph you get a comment that makes you want to just melt into the floor you know because you I'd never done it before and to so to share this with a professional was scary brought to you by Reedsy this is best seller over the course of this season we'll follow an indie author's journey from start to finish in five chapters exploring each step it takes to turn the escapist world of your dreams into a bona fide young adult series next up is chapter two the least syllable of thy edition this episode was written hosted and produced by me casimir m stone if you liked it please take a moment to rate review and subscribe to the podcast Our guest this season is Tara Holliday, a.k.a. T.M. Holliday, author of the Candy and Airs series. You can purchase her books on Amazon or on her website at tmholliday.com. That's T-M-H-O-L-L-A-D-A-Y dot com. And you can follow her on Instagram or Twitter at T.M. Holliday. This podcast, like so many self-published books out there, is made possible by Readsy, a marketplace that connects indie authors with the tools that traditional publishing houses would usually provide, such as editors, book cover designers, and publicists. You can learn more about Readsy on Instagram at Readsy underscore HQ, on Twitter at Readsy HQ, or online at R-E-E-D-S-Y dot com.